This will probably not surprise you, but I am not the most organised, most tidy, most everything-in-its-own-place kind of person, which means that often I find myself looking for something or other at any given moment of the day, wandering from one room to the next, calling out for some keys or a book or a pair of headphones as if they might go, I'm here, you silly idiot, underneath the pile of washing which you have yet to put away or midst all the clutter of a kitchen surface. One day, all our objects will no doubt talk and answer back to us, and then we can give up on face-to-face communication for good. We're more than halfway there already, perhaps. At least it feels that way. Hello, and welcome to Cook the Book, in which I cook the whole of Mirasoda's East from cover to cover. There is something that is also a little bit out of place, a little bit out of season, not quite apt or right about cooking recipes based on their order in a book rather than on whether they might be in sync with our mood or a day or our star sign. For today is bitterly cold and grey and wet, a day in which I don't think I would have naturally thought about making a citrus Thai salad with grapefruit and cashews had I been planning a maximizer menu, that is to say, a menu based on what might supposedly be the best option for me, usually having followed an exhaustive search through all the alternatives. If you're someone who sits in front of a restaurant menu and has to think your way through almost every dish before you make your choice, you're probably a maximizer too. Satisfices, satisfices, their eyes alight on something that interests or suggests a good enough return on their choice, and they save themselves the hassle of having to go through all the other options. Satisfices generally experience more well-being than maximizers. But as a maximizer, I'm just going to say, well, they, they just don't know what they're missing out on. To which science would respond. Because maximization is not realistic and usually impossible in everyday life. Maximizers often feel regretful in their post-choice evaluation, and so experience more negative emotions such as remorse, worry, as well as self-criticism and general lamentation. And now that Amazon, of course, has turned us all into maximizers, let me show you to the sertraline and citalopram drink stations so that you can bathe your neurotransmitters in some delicious serotonin. Consider this Music here. Sorry, I like this part. Enjoy. New recipes also push us towards stores or aisles in the supermarket that we don't often visit. Who would have thought with something so plentiful as onions and oil and frying pans that there would be a need for bags of processed fried onions? As there is a need in this recipe today. I guess bags of fried onions fall into the same category as jars of crushed garlic or those yellow squeezy lemon-shaped plastic containers, Jif lemons they're called over here, the squeezy fake lemon holding 55 milliliters of reconstituted lemon juice which manages to acquire an infinite shelf life through the addition of sodium metabisulfite. Which of course brings us to this week's big neurotic dilemma, where, how and indeed if 
I should actually buy a kilo of these fried onions just in order to scatter a few of them onto the top of Mira's Thai salad with grapefruit and cashews, meaning the rest of the bag will probably sit in a kitchen cupboard thereafter, never to be used again. So I'm in my local Kingsbury fruit and veg shop looking for a packet of fried onions, although I've got waylaid by the khaki fruit. Oh, I do love it when it gets all kind of gloopy and soft. Oh, there's some really gloopy ones here. Amazing. Also some custard apple here, which I'm tempted to try. I've never bought custard apple before. It's hard to know if it's ripe or not. I actually did buy the custard apple that I was palpating in the shop, and it wasn't ripe. Uh, and that's because I didn't get home and Google when are custard apples ripe, and if I had, I would have found uh, custardapple.com Australia, which would have informed me that a custard apple is ripe when you gently squeeze it and it gives slightly under your hand. So I guess think pear, think peach, think custard apple. And here we go. A bag of fried onions. Mm-hmm. Okay. KTC, fried onions. Imagine a bag of cornflakes and imagine a small child sitting on a bag of cornflakes and then the cornflake crumb that, that is the result of that small child's weight on a bag of cornflakes. Uh, that would be the look of your bag of fried onions. I'm standing in the kitchen. Uh, East is open on the toaster, ready to go. Um, but looking around, there is literally not an inch of space to make this Thai salad with grapefruit and cashews, which is annoying. Quarter of a small red cabbage, and I've got a kind of medium cabbage, so I have to do a uh, like a, I don't know what that. What's the fraction there of a, of a quarter of a small cabbage, a quarter of a medium cabbage is going to be. Oh, but hang on, I'm doing half. Quarter of a medium. Oh dear, I'm doing I'm doing half of a quarter. I'm worried about wasting food with this project. Every year, this little island throws away 6.6 .6 million tons of food, and 4.5 million tons of that is edible. You know the January declutter mania where we all clear our cupboards of stuff that has sat there for the last year and is now out of date, spices, panic-bought bags of extra rice or dried pulses at the start of the pandemic. Well, what about a bag of fried onions purchased to fulfill the dictates of a recipe book, for example? A standard UK household wastes on average the equivalent of eight meals a week. All our wasted food, were it not to be buried beneath the ground far, far away from any shameful triggers would fill 
according to the Waste and Resources Action Programme, WRAP.org, approximately 66,000 three-bed terraced houses equivalent to the population of a town the size of Peterborough. Imagine walking around Peterborough or Huddersfield or Stockport or Brighton and every property you see has had its human animals evicted in order to make space for all of that above-ground landfill, jam-packed from floor to ceiling with out-of-date bags of salad, we check away 178 million of these bags every year, or bread, 24 million slices a day are binned, or bananas, 1.4 million bananas binned every day, even though we all know by now that a super ripe banana can be used in a smoothie or frozen to make ice cream or some other, or some banana bread, all of which clearly we can't be asked to do, you, me, us lazy creatures. So chow chow, 1.4 million bananas a day, 500 million bananas every year, none of them grown anywhere near these wet and often sunless climes. And as for that grand total, the 4.5 million tonnes of food amounting to 14 billion pounds spent in shops and supermarkets, imagine how many hungry bellies 14 billion pounds worth of food might feed in other countries or even in this one where people are starting to actually struggle and maybe even starve. So I was just thinking, you know, if you want to... If you want to try and get this podcast out there, I think you need to broaden your horizons a little bit. A voice note from my brother Mark WhatsApped over whilst I was in the process of segmenting a pink grapefruit, finally shredding a quarter of a small cabbage and half an iceberg lettuce and juliening, fiddly, two medium carrots. Right, so um, have you sent these to Mira yet? No, I haven't. I mean... I think you should. I think you should try and tweet her or kind of get get her involved somehow. Um, because at the moment, right, it's basically there's only three people listening to this, Steve. This is absolutely spot on and true. Right? Me and Ma and Dad. This is also true. Although I did send the link to the podcast to a couple of ex-girlfriends and a few acquaintances. But... I guess they've had their fill of my blather in other forms. And I think, you know, I think more people should listen to it because I think it's good. Yeah, but with a hundred thousand good podcasts out there, what can you do? So I'm just a bit worried. You've got to be careful. You've sort of shot yourself in the foot a little bit with all this sort of anti-baby stuff already. Because like Mira, you know, she's family... She's mum, isn't she? I think she's on baby number two. This is also true, although I have no idea how my brother actually knows this information. Um, maybe if you have children, you uh, somehow have some sort of app and you get alerted every time um, another child is is born to, to, to anyone on the island, um, particularly if it's born to a kind of a celebrity. I don't know if Mira would be considered a celebrity. I guess so. Um I actually went on Twitter the other day to see what she was up to, and she's up to nothing because it says on her profile, Matt, leave. And uh, I thought at the time, wow, maybe she's training to be a yoga teacher, showing you just how ignorant I am um, with regard to all the sort of the, the, the lingo of baby making. So, you know, it's, there's no good... Uh, it's no good taking out the subject of your podcast... Look, if you want, I can try and get something over to her because 
Um, I could probably get hold of her agent or... FYI, this is, this is not grandstanding or boasting on my brother's part. He, he is, in fact, a, a television program maker and has even done some cookery stuff, hence the oft-quoted tale of him sharing a packet of prawn cocktail crisps once with Jamie Oliver and a shoot, and them two, both new dads at the time, having a very long, in-depth and quite moving discussion, by the sound of it, um, about the consistency and odour of a well-filled baby's nappy. Um, but basically, we need to do, you know, a version of it that doesn't contain elements of pedophobia, all right? Whoops, hang on. Okay, so, a pedophobia, uh, an emotional state of fear, disdain, aversion or prejudice towards children, versus pedophilia, which is wanting to have sex with aforesaid children. Because pedophobia is not a good look. It's not a good look. People are into babies, right? People like babies. This is broad appeal now, right? Got to got to think broad appeal. More babies. Babies are good, yeah? Babies are good. Mira and babies, you love them. You love both of them in equal measure. Uh, I, I do, uh, which is to say uh, I, I am interested in babies. And, uh, in fact, I'm going to read to you a poem now that I wrote a few weeks ago when I found out that my upstairs neighbours had spawned an infant, I think, on Christmas Day. They they didn't call it Jesus, but have actually gone with the name Cabron, which they tell me is a very famous rapper in Romania, kind of like the Romanian Jay-Z, uh, except a white guy. Romania being one of the last, you know, bastions of white anti-Roma supremacy in the good old EU. Um, this is what uh, Cabron sounds like, if you're interested. Looks a bit like a bald ferret. That's the rapper, Cabron, but, but also the baby, Cabron. Um, so here's my poem, which I wrote in their Congrats, it's a boy card. I know, a little bit sexist, but that's their vibe. Uh, so here it goes. Cabron, Cabron, may you grow big and strong and perhaps one day have a whopping chart-topping song written for or even by you, Cabron, Cabron. Actually, come to think of it, I do, I think I do know someone who knows her, who went to university with her. Um, it's one of the researchers I used to work with. And apparently, I mean, he said that she was really big on the Mahjong scene. She'd set up her own Mahjong club and um, was, you know, uh, beating everyone on campus, left, right and centre, including, I believe, some minor royal from the Spanish royal family. It was quite a racket. She won a lot of money. Interesting character. Anyway, bro, um, I'm home now, so I am going to go have a lie down and I'll catch you later. Making is a kind of meditation. What a beauty. Making is a kind of And you're a very fine carrot too. This is the other carrot. I have to uh, keep the praise going. Making is a kind of Okay. So these have to be the carrots peeled and julienned. That's the little sticks, isn't it? Right. I sort of get that mixed up with um, 
doing strips, but I guess strips are always called strips, and Julienne is Julienne. Oh dear! I was supposed to start with grapefruit and doing all sorts of things there, now, but I just went into it and just did my own thing. Hmm. Well done. Might, might actually be a good idea to read the recipe before you are started. Okay, so in the middle of actually preparing this, I'm going to start it now. One. I'm not going to get four tablespoons here. Oh, that's, that's because I didn't do a third. I did a... I did a quarter. I probably did a fifth. Why am I so bad at fractions? Although it's not particularly aesthetically pleasing. Add the soy sauce and muddle. What's a muddle? I like sort of stir it together. Okay. Uh, and then add the grapefruit juice, lime juice, and mix again. I was watching Ozu's Tokyo Story last night. Uh, I've never seen it before. It's uh, incredible. And because I'm in this sort of declutter mode, the, one of the things that kept on popping up in the mind with these many interior shots of the children's living spaces in Tokyo was just how intrinsically uncluttered these spaces were. Not even cluttered with furniture. They really were just these empty spaces with some, you know, basic tatami mats or whatever, little cushions uh, put down on the ground to sit on or to sleep on. And for a split second, I did have the, I was going to say insane, but yeah, potentially insane idea of, well, why don't I just, they just get rid of everything and, uh, and just sleep on a tatami mat. And I don't know why I would even want to do that per se. There is a well-known essay by Borges called The Analytical Language of John Wilkins, which contains a possibly apocryphal list, a sort of taxonomy from a certain Chinese dictionary entitled The Celestial Emporium of Benevolent Knowledge. And here, according to Borges, it is written that animals can be divided into categories, like, for example, those belonging to the emperor, or those that are embalmed, or imaginary animals, or those that are crazy acting, or uh, those which have just broken a vase. And of course, the, <laughs> the other one, the other one I really love is those which from a distance look like flies. So here's another list from a certain uh, top kitchen drawer emptied in a bid to bring some Marie Kondo-esque order and harmony into my life. And uh, I'm willing to bet a small sum of money that you too have some variant of these pieces of crap sitting in one of your kitchen drawers somewhere. So here's exhibit A, uh, a large wooden fork that came with a wooden spoon and spatula set. I have no need for this fork, but for some reason only understood by the gods of hoarding and disorganization, I have held on to it for years. Bye-bye, large wooden fork. 
And that, my friend, is the sound of a large wooden fork being thrown into a bin. Not a bag for Oxfam, you ask? No, not a bag for Oxfam. Because this is how existential despair and inertia first manifests itself in the lives of left-leaning professionals. The day you can't be asked to haul your unwanted crap to Oxfam. The day you just throw it into the recycling bin instead. And the day you stop throwing recyclables into the recycling bin is the day that you need to ring me up and book an appointment for some therapy, for that is truly the sign that the nervous breakdown has finally taken hold of your life. Okay, exhibit B. Hmm, how to describe this? Maroon-coloured, plastic, sort of todger-shaped, with a small, narrow tube, very much like a a kind of uncircumcised penis kind of sliding out of the casing. And uh, this tube has built into it a two-inch metal prong, though it looks a bit more like a syringe needle, maybe one used on an elephant or some other thick-skinned animal. I have literally no idea what the object is for, although it does have the word coquette stamped, on, uh, stamped onto it. So I guess I could Google it if I really wanted to. Uh, can't remember where I got it from, maybe from a skip. I think it was in the original packaging, which is why I picked it up and brought it home. And 10 years later, I now use it to poke at the metal innards of an electric grinder that has the name of a TV chef printed on, printed on the side. A TV chef I have never seen on any screen ever. I often wonder how much while the American Clipper Company paid this TV chef to have his stupid name stamped onto hundreds and thousands of substandard grinders, grinders that only work for a few months until crucial bits like the on-off switch start falling off them, requiring the use of this corkette prong, whatever that is, to make the damn thing work. Goodbye, corkette. I shall now use the tip of a small knife for the James Martin grinder. Exhibit C. Various loose-leaf tea strainers produced by a Chinese company trying to sound European, I think, with their brand name, Unona. I guess that says sophisticated tea tasting to Chinese ears. Or is that what Chinese manufacturers believe says sophisticated tea tasting to our ears? I really don't know. The only problem is that the holes in the strainer are so microscopically small that they immediately get blocked up and thus made completely in inoperative by things like water or particles of coronavirus or protons and neutrons, although quarks uh, still seem to be able to get through. Goodbye, Unona tea leaf. That's right, you guessed it! This be the cool, funky, hip-hop, bow-janglement of Cabron! What a great name for a baby. We love babies, don't we? Yeah, babies! Woo! Exhibit D. Uh, a carrying case for a fancy but non-electric pencil sharpener. Um, so... A few months back, I, I needed a pencil sharpener. 
But having nothing better to do, it would seem at the time, I spent probably something like two hours on the internet researching which pencil sharpeners are considered to be the real creme de la creme of the stationary world. Remember, maximizer here, because God forbid I would just buy a basic pencil sharpener from the supermarket or at a pound shop. And unsurprisingly, it turns out there is such a thing as the best pencil sharpener in the world, and it's called, no surprises there either, the Masterpiece. It is also, as you would expect, German, in fact, handmade in Germany from lightweight yet durable magnesium with blades of finely ground high carbon steel. You know, the hardness, something around 62 HRC, if that means anything to you. It means absolutely nothing to me. And the USP of this pencil sharpener, which is called the Masterpiece, a manual pencil sharpener, let me just remind you because you still have to do all the work, is supposedly that it sharpens in two phases for an extremely precise point and also for exposed lead. And who doesn't want exposed lead, right? And all of this for a mere 15 pounds. What a bargain, you don't say. And before you ask, no, I'm not throwing away the pencil sharpener itself, although if anyone wants it, it's yours, as I discovered that I still prefer sharpening pencils with a penknife and don't really have much need for extremely precise points and exposed lead. What I am ditching, though, is the special little padded carrying case the pencil sharpener came in, which has the word, the masterpiece, come, that's spelled K-U-M, in large red letters on its surface. Goodbye, cum. Made in Germany since 1919. Pencil sharpener. Carrying case. I don't think this is going to make much of a noise. Let's try it. Okay, one more and I'll give it a rest. Uh, but, you yeah. know, I got hundreds of these things, but I'll save you the, the, the Megillah on all of them. So, this one, hmm... It sort of looks like the digging part of a tiny shovel, maybe a shovel used by an elf or some other woodland creature, measuring about three quarters of an inch across, just over an inch in length. I believe it is a specially designed implement for grating horseradish. Made in Japan, uh, the surface has a series of tiny ridges on it, which sort of make me think of facial scarification. Uh... I think this was given to me by a client for Christmas a couple of years ago. No idea why they thought I needed such a thing. Goodbye, horseradish grater. Oh, that one didn't go in. Ugh. Goodbye, horseradish grater. Ah, it doesn't want to go. Third time lucky. Goodbye, horseradish grater. Yes! There's a lot going on here in terms of texture. When I taste a candy, my tongue says, sweet, 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 sweet. When I taste a pickle, my tongue says, salty, salty, salty. It's strange when you get carrot and carrot and grapefruit together. In a way, the sort of a Grapefruit almost cancels out the carrot, and yet there's this tiny little sweetness of carrot that's still there. These are the tastes my taste buds can feel. Taste everything, eat everything, enjoy, enjoy, enjoy! There are no real overriding flavors, but 
and all just sort of weaves together. This lovely sort of citrusy, nutty, herby sort of thing. Mm. That's very good, that basil and basil with the with the segments of. Oh, oh, lots of chili. Mm. Oh dear. Oh dear. Oh, chili head rush. <gasps> and chili hiccups. Oh dear. This is the reason why I didn't put in two chilies. Oh. Oh, it's such an involuntary thing. Braying sound, it's like the braying of a horse. So there you go, a, uh, a pretty intense experience, that Thai salad with grapefruit and cashews. But you can handle the realness of my crunching and chomping and wild hiccuping, right? <laughs> as, a, as a wise man once said, you, you people are real people, I can really tell. That's, that's the truth. I can feel you, I can hear you, I can smell you, I can taste you. I really, really like it. And even if it's just three listeners at the moment, hey. My name is Steve Wasserman, and you've been listening to the third episode of Cook the Book. So, hmm, would I make this again? Maybe. I mean, it's one of those recipes where I think I probably would have made it anyway. I found the grapefruit quite overpowering, um, so maybe I would use a little bit less grapefruit next time. But it's a, it's a, it's a good one. It's a good one. It's a solid three, maybe a three point two five, and I think anything that gets above a three uh, definitely is worth um, making a few more times. If you have a look at the show notes for this episode, um, I'll leave a link there for the recipe on the Guardian website. And if you fancy, you can make it yourself. Ah, yes. So the crispy onions. Well, uh, yeah, they were they were okay. They're a little bit like croutons, I guess. Um, so now I have a kilo of onion tasting croutons to work my way through in the next few months. Ah, one bit of extra feedback that I got from my brother about the last episode was that I hadn't spent enough time kind of describing the dish and giving the listeners, the listeners, the three listeners, him, my mother and father, uh, a sense of uh, what it actually looked like on a plate. And uh, although I took this on board, um, oh, I really, really at the moment, in the middle of, you know, a second lockdown, pandemic, everything just falling to pieces, I really just can't work up the energy to do that. So, so what I'm going to do, Mark, is... Um, I'm going to just present at the end of each episode a, a sound effect which I think captures the look of the what the food looks like on the plate. 
uh, kind of synesthesia, eat your heart out. And, uh, and so this is what um, Thai grapefruit and cashew salad looks, tastes, feels like. Now, let me make as much sound as I wanted it to. Okay, here we go. Here we go. 